0: looking at the clock I'm not sure whether to say good morning or good afternoon so <laughs> hello everybody <laughs> and greetings from west of the ban. it's always good to be um, up in the big smoke at Castaway Fellowship and you know your fame has extended far and wide through Jeff's literature it's even on our table in Lingan Baptist these days so there you go it's, it's sort of traditional that I do a book review uh, when I come here I'm not going to do one today. Andrew has beaten me to it. So thanks, Andrew, for your leading. And all I can do is endorse the book Gentle and Lowly that, that Andrew mentioned. Um, it's by one of the Ortlands. There's so many Ortlands, I always forget which one it is. I think this one's Dane. Um, Their writings are all good, actually. But Gentle and Lowly is a lovely book. Buy yourself or buy somebody the nice hardback edition that looks really good in your bookshelf. Um, I don't know if you like poetry, because we're going to read a poem this morning. No, not one of mine and not one of Jeff's. Um, One written by somebody else. I wonder if you did poetry at school, if you studied English literature perhaps. Um, I was going to say O-level English literature, but you young people think of it as GCSE. And perhaps you were forced to study poetry. I actually like poetry and some of what I learned at school has, has stuck with me. But sometimes I wondered as we study those poems, did we take things out of them that the poet never put into them? And of course, in our postmodern world, that's exactly how you interpret any bit of text, isn't it? You just interpret it whatever way you like, irrespective of what the author meant, if indeed he or she meant anything at all. So we're going to read a poem this morning, and it's Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is the poem we want to look at today. Um, And hopefully we want to take out more from it than the author put into it. And you'll see from the heading of Psalm 8 that that author is David. This is King David, uh, the shepherd boy who became Israel's greatest king. If you look at the heading above the psalm, which these headings are original, of course, it says for the director of music. So I assume what happens is David has written a new, a new song for, I mean, he said Sunday worship for temple worship, and he sent it to the director of music. And then he has added to it according to Gittith. Now, nobody has a clue what Gitteth means. You can look up all the commentaries you want. Nobody really knows. If you have a, a Bible with notes, it'll probably say probably a musical term. So it might have meant this is the style that we want it played in. Gitteth might have been, might have had some guy, Sinclair Ferguson they maybe had some chap who specialised in a particular instrument and he wanted his instrument to be prominent when they sang this psalm. We don't know, so don't ask me, I don't know. Let's read it together. And this is the word of the Lord. Verse 1 of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a praise psalm. It's probably the first actual genuine praise psalm in the Psalter. And it reflects on profound truths and asks one profound question. Now if you read it in several translations, I was reading NIV this morning, or even consult the margin of the NIV or a good study Bible, you'll see that there are some translation differences. But these don't affect the message of the psalm in any way. And indeed in some ways they actually enhance The message, as we shall see. There are truths which are easily deduced from the psalm. So I want to consider three truths from this psalm this morning. And I'm going to tell you what they are now. So if you want to doze off or need to leave early, you won't miss the three main truths from this psalm. Truth one, God is majestic. Truth two, human beings are insignificant. Truth three, human beings are glorious. Let's consider those three things. In turn, truth one, God is majestic, or as the New Living Translation translates it, magnificent. God is magnificent. And the psalm opens with King David exulting in the majesty of God. If you look down at your Bible, you'll notice the capital letters. O Lord, small capitals, our Lord, not capitalized. The capitals, as I'm sure you know, indicate that David is using God's covenant name, Yahweh, here. That's how we translate it in most of our Bibles as Lord, all in capitals. That is his name, the covenant name of God. And that's all very well to say there is a God, there is a covenant God, but David goes on to say this covenant God is our Lord. This is Israel's God. This today is our God. We can claim Yahweh as our personal Lord John Golden Guy suggests that David's invocation spells out the implications of Yahweh being Lord in acknowledging that his name is splendid and majestic usually with the implication of being mighty or powerful and the response to might is not merely wonder or admiration but deferential submission that's what you do when you're in the presence of someone whom you call your majesty. You show deferential submission. And I'm not even going to go there. But that's what you do. When you're in the presence of God, the majestic one, you show deferential submission. You don't come into his presence with your hands in your pockets, with out of care in the world. You're approaching the majestic God. And David who wrote this? Remember who David is? Now, I don't know when he wrote it. it, it's not terribly clear. David might have written this when he was a shepherd boy. But the fact that he had put this musical um, direction at the start of it suggests that he wrote it later on when he was actually the king. David is the king, he's the most powerful man in the kingdom. Everybody does what David says. When David says jump, they say hi, hi. When David commands the armies to go and attack someone, they do it. When David asks for money, they bring it. But yet David is acknowledging that there is a king who is greater than he is. God is majestic. David knows where the true power lives. And he knows who the true king is. What does verse 2 mean? Verse 2 in the NIV reads like this. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Might mean strength rather than praise, depends on which translation you read. And actually the Hebrew and the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint, which is often quoted by the New Testament writers, are slightly different here. But we'll stick with ordaining praise from the mouths of children. And you might ask, in what way that silences the foe and the avenger? Perhaps the New Living Translation gives the sense best. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. The Septuagint translate the Hebrew into Greek to mean something slightly different. If you were have a Bible with you and you want to turn it up, that would be great. Look at Matthew chapter 21. This verse, this psalm is quoted and alluded to several times in the New Testament. If you remember in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus entered Jerusalem in triumph the triumphal entry we talk about on Palm Sunday particularly and you know all the palm branches that were being waved and the the shouts quoting prophecy and so on and then in verse 12 of Matthew 21 Jesus enters the temple and drives out all those who are buying and selling and so on look at verse 14 and see the response to all of this the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. <coughs> Psalm 8. And he left them, and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So, the priests and the scribes who should have been rejoicing in the fulfilment of prophecy in which they were experts didn't get it. They said, Isn't it outrageous to Jesus? These children are shouting at Hosanna! <laughs> They're claiming that you're the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord. And how does Jesus respond? As Jesus always responds, he quotes Scripture. And here he quotes Psalm 8. Have you never read, he said, From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. What a gentle put down. For the priests and the scribes. Who should have recognized Jesus. Who should have worshipped him. But rejected him. But the children they got it didn't they? Have you ever noticed how readily children understand the majesty and power. And even the existence of God. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed when you read children a bible story. They just believe it. They don't say nah that couldn't have happened. They're just. They wonder at who Jesus was, at his kindness, at the way he did things, at the miracles that he carried out, at the way he dealt with with children. They believe that God created the heavens and the earth. It just comes naturally to them. Doubt and cynicism and denial often come later. But children often seem to grasp things in a simple way that adults don't get. And isn't that why Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come to me. And isn't that why he said that you needed to come as children? Because you need to have that simple trust that these cynical priests and scribes didn't have. See, Jesus didn't fit the picture. He didn't ride in on a war horse and kick out the Romans and re-establish a kingdom in Jerusalem. No, he came gentle and lowly, riding on a donkey. They didn't get it, but the children got it. Hosanna to the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What is it that causes David to worship? Well, it's creation, isn't it? When he looks at the night sky, uh, maybe he was the shepherd boy out in the fields at night and he could look up and see the stars and the moon. Or maybe he's the king on the roof of his palace looking at something that it was okay to look at for a change and seeing stars and moon and thinking, wow, imagine God, our God, making all this. And he puts it beautifully, doesn't he? Beautifully poetically in verse 3. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. I wonder, do you have skillful fingers? I have to say, when I watch Catherine play on the piano, I'm envious of her finger work. I can't do that. Maybe you've got, or you're a wizard on a different type of keyboard. Maybe you can type it 500 words a minute or something. I can't really do that either. Or maybe you can wield a paintbrush and produce beautiful portraits or landscapes. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps you have a facility for needlework. Maybe you've got green fingers and you can grow beautiful things in your garden. Or perhaps you have very strong fingers capable of wielding a hammer and a chisel using tools to make things. Have you ever thought about how amazing your fingers are? David, of course, was was a harpist, so he probably had pretty good fingers as well, and he could also throw a good stone out of a sling, I'm told. But God, of course, doesn't have literal fingers, does he? We know God doesn't have fingers. We know God is spirit. So here is David using human language to explain what God does. The God of skillful fingers. Think about that. Isn't that a lovely thought? I, I think that's a beautiful thought. God doesn't have a literal human body. This is what we call anthropomorphism, if you like. David using a language to describe a person, to describe God. And remember that David has no Hubble telescope. All David has is his naked eye. He can look up into the sky and try to count the stars, and he can't. According to the European Space Agency, there are about 100,000 million stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way, of which the sun is one. I can't even begin to compute those figures. 100,000 million The website of the European Space Agency says that counting the stars would almost be like counting grains of sand on a beach. It's almost as if they've heard of Abraham, isn't it? And that's the conclusion we're meant to draw from creation. When we look at the heavens, we're meant to say, with all the multiple galaxies that we now know exist, apparently there are millions upon millions of galaxies, we're meant to say, someone made this. And isn't that someone majestic? That's the conclusion we're meant to draw. David might join us in singing, O Lord my God when I in awesome wonder consider all the works your hands have made I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee, how great thy art. That's the conclusion we're meant to draw from creation. And of course isn't that the conclusion that Paul draws In Romans chapter 1, Paul says this, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So when we look at creation, we're meant to draw the conclusion that God made it and that God is majestic. And Paul says people who don't believe that have just turned their backs on the truth. And, of course, he goes on then to talk about how God gave them up to their own sinful desires. But we're not talking about Romans. We're talking about Sam So let's go back there. So that's the first truth. God is majestic, and he speaks to us through creation. Truth two, human beings are insignificant. When David considers the work of the heavens, in verse three, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set on place, He asks the obvious question. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care about him. The phrase son of man, of course, immediately makes us think about Jesus, but that's not what it means in the psalm. It's just Hebrew parallel poetry. It's two different ways of saying the same thing and making it sound better than prose. Again, New Living Translation is helpful here. Translates it like this, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them? See, we're mere specks of dust on the earth, aren't we? Surely far beneath God's notice. Our lives are short and insignificant. No matter what we think of ourselves, in the cold light of day, most of us realise that few of us will make a lasting significance on the world. And incidentally, if you are overcome with your own insignificance, when you, your own insignificance, when you think about that, remember that God knows everything about you, down to the number of hairs on your head, and He loves and cares for you as an individual. Isn't that stunning? These totally insignificant specks of dust, bits of clay, insignificant in comparison to the majestic God and His creation, and yet God knows and cares for each. And every one of us. Isaiah chapter 40. Takes up the same idea. And I'm sure you know this chapter very well. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 40. If you're still with me. And have a Bible to hand. A voice says cry out. And I said what shall I cry. All men are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers. And the flowers fall. Because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall. There's a contrast there, of course, coming, isn't there? The word of the Lord stands forever. And Peter takes those words up in 1 Peter and he quotes them: Human beings are insignificant. We're not here for very long. We don't make a big impact on the world. And look at what he says, and Isaiah says later on in that chapter about God. He says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to nothing and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root on the ground that he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. If you ever have pride in yourself and your achievements, whether you're a king or a prime minister or a president or just you and me, just read those verses from Isaiah chapter 40 and it'll put the whole thing for you into perspective. Human beings are insignificant. Compared to God's creation, David asked the question why on earth would you care about us. As Isaiah says, when God looks down from heaven, we're like grasshoppers. Have you ever seen a a grasshopper or a small insect? When it looks up at you, I wonder what it thinks, if it thinks at all. You're enormous and powerful and strong, but you probably stood on a few insects on your way into church this morning and didn't even notice. That's how small we are in comparison to how great God is. And yet, he knows all about us. So compared to the greatness of God, that's truth to human beings are insignificant and yet human beings are glorious that's what david says in the psalm you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor verse 5 is one of those other slight translation difficulties made him a little lower than heavenly beings said the niv some versions say angels some versions say god but the important thing is here that human beings are not divine. There's a, what's known as the creator-creature distinction. and We need to remember that. Human beings are not gods. We are different to God. We are not divine. We are human. But they have been, David says, given dominion over creation. And again, David puts it beautifully in the language he uses. And this takes us right back to Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 1 after Adam and Eve are created verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1 what does God say to them God said let us make man in our image in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over livestock over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing and every living creature that moves on the ground and so on and so forth. We sometimes get so tied up in arguing about uh, Genesis chapter 1's early verses that we forget about those verses towards the end. But let me just quickly draw your attention to two things here. First of all, Adam and Eve were made in God's image. Male and female, in God's image. We don't have time to expand on that, but remember that it's only of human beings that this is said. Human beings have a unique place, not if anybody tells you, in God's creation. Not the same as other animals, whatever anybody might tell you. Human beings have a unique place in God's creation because all of us, male and female, are made in the image of God. And of course, there's lots you could draw out from that that we apply to our modern cultural discussions. And the second thing is that having been made in the image of God, Adam and Eve were given a task, what we call the creation mandate. God's creation was perfect. But Adam and Eve had work to do. And I've thought about this a little bit recently. It's come across in a few books that I've been reading. Their work was to cultivate the garden. It was probably to extend the Garden of Eden beyond the garden, to extend their mandate into the earth that God had created. It was to populate the earth with children and to raise them up to worship God, to have stewardship, if you like, over the earth. Michael Horton puts it like this. He said, it is not because of our soul or our intellect that we are ranked higher than our fellow creatures, but because we have been created in the wholeness of our identity with a special commission for a special relationship with God. So only human beings have that relationship with God and it was only human beings were given a mandate to rule over God's creation. All well and good. But you say, hold on a minute. That's not how it is. We live in a world in which people have plundered the planet's natural resources. Where we need the RSPCA to deal with cruelty to animals. Where the United Nations are anything but united. And where countries are ravaged by war, and as we heard earlier this morning, where Christians are persecuted for their faith. We live in a, a world where babies are aborted at will, and in many societies, the elderly are not valued and are pushed towards euthanasia. So, if human beings were given dominion over all that we read in verses 6 to 8, and look at the beautiful language. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. If human beings of Adam and Eve were put in charge of that and their descendants, that's you and me, to have dominion over God's grace, what a mess we've made of it. What an absolute mess we made of it. And of course you just need to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and discover where all that started, when Adam and Eve went their own way instead of God's way. So how come we can read Psalm 8 this morning and think it's true? Well, the writer to the Hebrews anticipates all that, doesn't he? And this is the easy reference to Psalm 8 in Hebrews chapter 2. I was discussing this Sam, with a very good friend a couple of weeks back, and I asked them the New Testament references to Psalm 8, and this was the one that he immediately came up with, and it's the one that we probably all know. And I'm going to take just a couple of minutes um, to look at that. Because that's where I want to finish this morning. Chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 5. It is not to be angels that he, that is God, has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. I love that, by the way, a place where someone... A bit like Vivian this morning, I think it's in Romans 5. You know, the writer of the Hebrews thinks somewhere in the Bible there's this verse that says... How often have we done that? What is... And it's for Psalm 8, of course. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. So the writer to the Hebrews agrees with what I've just said. Things are shambles. Everything is not under the dominion of human beings the way it should be. And then, listen to these magic words. But... We see Jesus. Isn't that fantastic? But we see Jesus, and look quickly at what he says about Jesus. He says he was made a little lower than the angels. So, if human beings in Psalm 8 and are a little bit lower than the angels, perhaps in terms of importance or glory, here was Jesus who was much higher than the angels, being made a little lower than the angels, taking upon himself the incarnation and the humility do you think Paul perhaps had Psalm 8 in mind as well when he penned Philippians 2 you can read that later and think about it yourself Jesus was made a little lower than the angels he is crowned with glory and honour the writers already quoted from Psalm 45 and Psalm 110 earlier in in the book he's saying here Jesus is already crowned with glory and honour Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In God's eyes, Jesus is already crowned with glory and honor. And in God's perfect timing, he will be revealed to all creation as crowned with glory and honor. The glory and honor are his by right as the eternal son of God. But amazingly, the writer of the Hebrews goes further He says he is crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering. If Jesus had never been incarnate, the Son of God had never been incarnate and become Jesus of Nazareth, if he'd never gone to the cross, if he'd never been resurrected, he would still be crowned with glory and honour as the eternal son of God. But in a very special sense, he's crowned with glory and honour because he finished the work that his father sent him to do and he deserves all the crown, all the glory, all the honour that is his. Crying with glory and honour because of his suffering, which was a prelude to his glory, the cross has to come before the crown. And his suffering wasn't for himself, but for others, Peter O'Brien puts it like this, in an amazing way, Jesus fulfills God's design for creation and displays what had always been intended for all humankind. His experience of humiliation and exaltation guarantees that the absolute subjection of everything as envisaged in 8, will yet be achieved. So there's more to come, much more. Paul alludes to these verses in his famous resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus and how everything will be put in subjection under his feet. See, God's purposes will not be thwarted. God's desire to have a perfect creation where everyone worships his majesty will not be thwarted. The last Adam will renew all that the first Adam destroyed. And the end, which will never end, will be glorious. We've come a long way from Psalm 8. And thank you for your patience. But not, I think, without New Testament warrant. So much more we could say. We consider, could consider how God knows and cares for each of us. But let us leave King David gazing up into the night sky. And just conclude... This beautiful psalm, with the way David concluded it, where he went right back to the beginning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.